before we dig in this morning. First of all, to our guests, I realize that, that no one wants the first message they hear at any church to be about money or giving, so sorry. Um, we don't talk about this every week. You'll just have to believe us at this point about that. In fact, this is the first message on giving in the 12 plus years of this church. I only ask that you come again next week so that you can get a taste of what our normal teaching diet is like. On one hand, boy, I wish we had a different introduction for you, but honestly, on the other hand, I think there's a lot that you can learn about a church by the way they talk about and handle money and giving. Second comment I want to direct to anyone who heard about this topic, whether three weeks ago or this morning, and would be a bit anxious, anxious about what I might say, wondering if this might be the equivalent of a scolding, because you are aware, and this was introduced in the context of our finances as a local body being down. Well, as much as I can at the outset, I, I want to put that at ease. I, I want to reassure you, I hope you're aware, that's not how we seek to lead. Yes, finances are down, but we are trusting God with the boundaries He gives us. As mentioned at the family meeting, it seems several factors are at play in our decreased income, including some families that have relocated, the continuing effects of a down economy, unemployment and underemployment of various members. There are various factors that no one in this room has any control over. But there are also a few factors where we can attempt to do something about. So in areas like our collective vision, focus and where that may have been unclear, we sought to take a step at the family meeting by spelling out some of the reasons we believe that God wants us to exist as a church, as a presence in the upstate of South Carolina. And again, if you have not listened uh, to the family meeting and you are a member or regular attender, I just encourage you to. I think it will be encouraging encouraging to you. It's available on our website. We also sought you that night on, uh, sought to update you on some of the specifics of our budget shortfall from last year and what needs we have, what we're looking forward to in the coming year. Those are things that we've already seek to at least begun to address. But teaching on this topic is an area that has historically been neglected. We own that. We own the responsibility for that. We don't expect one message to fix that. So, we plan in the future to have more of these messages. Don't expect it to be another 12 years before we bring up the topic of giving or money again. we can take a step today in being more faithful to the part that God has given us as pastors. 
I hope you know us well enough to know that as I approach this topic this morning, however, my chief goal isn't bigger offerings. Would we love for giving to go up? Absolutely. Because there's a lot more that we believe God wants us to do together. But numbers are not our measure of success. Not for this message and not for any area of our life together. So if you are tempted towards anxiousness related to this topic and might come out of my mouth in the next 40 or 50 minutes, please, please listen to what I say, not how someone else in a past experience that you had in another location, not how they taught on it and you didn't like it, or what you may be afraid that I might say, but listen to God's word for us this morning. Final comment before we jump in. As pastors, one of the reasons this isn't a popular topic is because we're aware of how it can at least appear to be self-serving, how it can be misunderstood, how motives can seem murky at best, especially given the fact that we announced at the family meeting that we were in the red for 2014. However, we have a responsibility before God to proclaim His whole word even when it is awkward and or can arouse suspicion of our motives. But because there are at least potential perceived pastor-hearer divide on a topic like this, I want to share a bit of our own family's giving history so that you can see two things. One, changes and fluctuations in our personal giving. And two, that I see myself first as a responder to this topic, not a preacher. Like all of Scripture, my first priority is not to proclaim what it says, but to live under it. Over the last 18 years, our giving has been somewhere between 10% to just over 40% of our income. Prompted in 1997 by our church and the building fund that they began at that time, we began to give 40% of our combined income, Colleen and I, when we were engaged. And we continued that giving amount for several years into our marriage. It included seasons of both of us working, as well as seasons of me at the pastor's college and us living off of Colleen and her income alone as she waitressed and worked in an office, as well as, again, another season, both of us working after that and eventually when she came out of the workforce to, um, for the birth of our oldest daughter. It included times of us renting, of us having free housing provided, and through the purchase of our first homes. It began when I was working as an RN, and Colleen was doing daycare. And it continued through multiple job changes and relocations and several years into my being a pastor. However, that's not where we currently are in our giving. 
transitions of need, such as changes in the church situation and where we were at in the process of building, as well as changes in priorities as our family grew, altered what giving looked like for us over the years. We spent a few years somewhere in the 20 to 30 range, and then after decreases in income, thanks to economy, things like that, as well as um, decreases to benefits, income several years ago, in addition to increases in our family spending. The last five years or so, we have been more in the 10, 10 to 15% range of our income going towards our giving. On a heart level, um, those initial levels of giving were because there was a desire, a passion for God, a desire to trust Him, um, to see, uh, to follow hard after Him with treasures, following our treasures, having our hearts follow our treasure. Honestly, some of the, the hardest things, most challenging things on a heart level for me were some of those decreases when I became aware of just different pride, different ways that I identified myself with my level of giving, regardless of the fact that no one else may have been aware of where we were at. I was, and it was something that was an identity in my relationship with God. Now, that information is shared not because anyone's goal should be to mirror or compare to what we have done or are doing, but to let you know that I don't see myself as exempt from this topic. On top of that, we know what it is like to have different seasons of life, both in what God provides in income as well as the different requirements and changing budgetary items that require our attention. My goal today isn't to say, here's the line for any of us. But instead, my desire is to say, behold our God to all of us. My goal for this message is no different than it was three weeks ago when we approached the topic of faith. My goal is not for you to give more, but for you to know God better, to have more faith in Him. The the response you will have is entirely between you and God. My responsibility in coming with His Word this morning is point you to what kind of God He is. So to do that, please turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. We'll begin reading in verse 6. And as we do, I specifically want you to look for this reality present in these verses. God enables and rewards our giving so that He can capture our hearts. God enables and rewards our giving so he can capture our hearts. 2 Corinthians 9, beginning with verse 6. 
The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must decide as each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Well, a quick bit of context. This is written to the church in Corinth, a church that we saw last week in our study through Acts that was started by Paul, one that he had a longer season of ministry in than most places, staying there a year and a half. There is a famine at this time in Jerusalem, and Paul has begun collecting an offering from the Gentile churches in order to provide relief for the believers in Jerusalem. As Matt mentioned last week, Corinth was a prosperous city, a key location along trade routes, and many believers there were likewise prosperous. In the preceding chapter of Corinthians, really a section, a larger section that this, these few verses are part of, we see that the church there had apparently pledged a generous amount towards the relief fund, but since that time, since initially making their pledge, their interest seems to have dropped off. So Paul is writing... Part of his purpose in writing this second letter to them is to encourage them, to strengthen them, to urge them on, to be faithful to what they said they would do. So I want us to look at a few verses in um, the beginning of chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians, just the chapter before. He writes, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. And just as a quick note, that's a city we will see Paul heading to in our Acts study a couple weeks from now. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. 
begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all eagerness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. So what we have here is Paul surprised by the joyful and eager response of the Macedonian believers in the midst of their extreme poverty and severe affliction shares their testimony with the Corinthians to see if he might be able to stir up a response in them. However, as he does this, he's quick to point out, and I want us to notice this as well, this is important for us to see. These next words that we're going to see from Paul as he talks about this area of giving, he's quick to say that this is not a sin issue. This is not a command that's being issued, but instead it's an opportunity for them to display their love. Verse 8, I say this not as a command, talking about them excelling in this act of grace, of giving. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So that you by his poverty might become rich. Down to verse 11. So now finish doing it as well so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. Paul reminds the Corinthians of Christ's ultimate display of love and generosity after he declares this is not a command he's giving them. He's trying to urge them on and godliness and good works. He's trying to urge them on in their love for God and love for the brethren. So he encourages them to complete what they started a year ago, telling them that their faithfulness is measured by what they do with what they have, not what they wish they could do with money that they don't have. He's not encouraging any kind of imaginary giving. To use the example of the Macedonians, they were faithful with the little they had. They were not giving according to what they wish they had. They weren't saying, if I had a million dollars, well, then I would give. They weren't even saying, if, if I had what the Corinthians had, well, then I could be serious about my giving. No, they gave according to what they had and even beyond their ability. Much like the widow that Jesus commended as he observed her in the temple 
dropping her last two copper coins into the treasury, commending her as giving more than all those that had bags of gold that they were giving because she gave from the little she had. And it was pleasing in the sight of God. Like that widow, the Macedonians were faithful with the little they had. They were generous with the little they had. So the question now goes to the Corinthians, how will you respond with the much that you have been provided? That's the context when we reach chapter 8 and the passage that we're looking at today. That's the context when Paul says, the point, the point of all that, of all I've been telling you about what they've been doing, the point of that is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly, not under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. These are the two things I want us to see this morning. God enables and rewards our giving. Second thing is so he can cap capture our hearts. God enables and rewards our giving so He can capture our hearts. Let's begin with God enables and rewards our giving. And before I go further on this point, I, I feel I, I almost need to make a disclaimer. Another one, sorry. That I think the health and wealth gospel is no gospel at all. The idea that we give in order to get, in order to be rich in this life is crass and selfish. God is not a vending machine where we put in our coin, push the right button, and get whatever we want. I feel I need to state that clearly, and I doubt I'm ruffling too many feathers in this room with a statement like that, but I feel it necessary to say it plainly in case anyone should wonder where I'm coming from with some of the other things I'm about to say. This picture, this point of Paul's of sowing and reaping sparingly and bountifully is not a difficult concept to grasp. It's not difficult for us in our day. It wasn't difficult for anyone sitting there familiar with agriculture. If you want a large crop, you, you need to plant more seeds. It, it's as simple as that. He's saying whatever you sow, well, that's the principle of God. According to what you sow, that's what you will reap. There, there's no mystery going on here. Nothing hidden in the agenda of God that is mysteriously revealed here, it's a basic principle. What do you want to reap? Well, sow according to that. Plant those seeds. 
we only invest a little, we shouldn't be expecting huge returns. Now, what I find provoking about that idea is that this isn't a standalone passage. This isn't the only place in Scripture that this idea is presented. Because frankly, I could ignore one of those. But we have passages where this principle is applied in Scripture, places like Proverbs chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the firstfruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Now, given what I mentioned just a minute ago, I freely admit that I feel cautious and even a little bit uncomfortable making an unvarnished statement like this, not coming in with a bunch of qualifiers. And I would just say, if I, on my own authority, were to make a declaration like this, well, I would encourage you not to walk, but to run away. Because I'm trying to sell you something. But if God, if He makes a declaration like this, well, that's a different situation entirely, isn't it? So at, at the risk of lifting just one proverb maybe out of its context because we haven't gone into all that. Are there other similar statements in Scripture? We could turn to Malachi chapter 3. In this passage, God accuses the nation of Israel of robbing Him. Now understand, what he was saying in, in them robbing him was pre-Christ, the tithe being part of the law. They were under the law. In that scenario, God viewed their tithes prescribed in the law the same way Uncle Sam views our taxes. We owe it. It's not a free will offering. We don't get to say to Uncle Sam, you know, I'm just not feeling it right now. Maybe next year. That's how God viewed tithing under the law. It was something that they were commanded to give. You never see the language of it as an offering. It is giving. It was something entirely different. It was something that they paid. Something that they owed. And part of that we understand with um, state and church all being one, this was to function. This was not far from a tax in this theocratic government. Okay, so there's some separation between then and today. We are not under the law. We are not bound by it. Christ has fulfilled it for us. 
So, this situation is that Israel was not paying the tithe. And so God equated that with robbing him. Again, not the scenario we find ourselves in. But what I want to point out is the part after that. The way that God relates with these people that he has said are stealing from him I think gives a magnificent insight and picture of the character of God. Malachi chapter 3 Return to me and I will return to you says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And this is the part we need to see and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. Put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then, then all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. So to those whose sin he has just equated with stealing from him, he says, obey me, return to me, and as you do, I challenge you, put me to the test and see if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Can you think of any other place in all of Scripture that God calls His people to challenge Him, to test Him? I can't. Actually, I can think of a couple places where he specifically says thou shalt not put the Lord thy God to the test yet here he issues this challenge he pleads the opposite with those who are stealing from him Test me and see if I won't bless you more than you can possibly imagine. The imagery here of the windows of heaven being opened is the same one as when the windows of heaven were opened in Genesis chapter 7 and the whole earth was covered in a flood. God's desire to bless His people currently sinning against Him is compared in volume to what the rivers and lakes and oceans could not contain. This, after he just told them that they are under a curse. The curse of the devourer destroying their crops. The, the curse of the vine failing to bear its fruit. 
I don't think it's a stretch to say that he is calling them to obey under some degree of compulsion here. And yet he is so disposed to bless that he calls them to test him in his generosity and his kindness. Friends, if that is his heart towards those living disobedient to the law, what do you think it might be towards those not living under the law who give not under compulsion but out of love? Cheerfully. How might he relate? Do you remember the verse that started our faith message a couple weeks ago? Hebrews eleven six. The writer writes, and without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Again, I'd be reluctant to make a declaration like that because I know we don't deserve any rewards. Or maybe because I think that A reward is not a pure, good enough motive for me to be motivated by. But if God says that he is the kind of God who is a rewarder, wouldn't it be foolish to disregard him? Or to think that we have a more pious motive than he does? How are we to understand such brash-sounding statements of God's promised return on the investment of giving? I think there are two keys that the New Testament lays out for us that help us to understand this giving and return with a rewarding God. The first we see at the start of verse 11 in our 2 Corinthians 9 passage where where Paul says that you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Paul's pointing out that there is an eternal transaction when we give of our temporary possessions. Jesus expanded on this a bit in Matthew 6 when he said do not lay up for yourselves Treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus is saying, We have an opportunity to exchange the stuff of earth with the things of heaven. Given the reality that Everything here is fleeting and corruptible, subject to destruction and decay. Jesus tells his followers not to be consumed with accumulating stuff here, but to invest in what is eternal, to invest in what will never be destroyed or taken from us. He's not saying that the accumulation of treasure is bad, In fact, he's promising rewards. But what he is saying is that it's foolish. It's an unwise investment to store it up in the wrong place. 
We invest in eternity when we give. But as we've seen in other passages, that doesn't mean our return is solely limited only to one day in heaven. The second key to understanding giving as an investment is found in the preceding verse of this same chapter, 2 Corinthians 9.10. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. When we speak of God as a rewarder, it is important to remember where the seed even comes from in the first place. God supplies all that we give. When we give, it's not out of the benevolence, out of the fullness of all that we possess. For what, what do we have that has not been given to us? We can give only because He has generously provided for us. But as we give and invest in eternal things, Paul says God will multiply our seed for sowing. Well, what's the purpose of seed? Him providing more seed is so that we can do more sowing. That we might sow more and that we might reap a greater harvest of righteousness. It says you are enriched in every way, not primarily so that you have need of nothing. Not just so that you can spend what you receive on earthly comforts and pleasures. But so that you can be generous in every way. Now, I'm putting big categories out there. I don't have time to build every bridge. I want to take us back just for a minute to that reality that Paul talked about. He's not talking about sin here. Is stuff bad? The stuff isn't evil in itself. The question is, where are our hearts directed We're going to get to that point in a minute that God wants to capture our hearts. But I'm aware, just reading through this, how this can affect my soul, and I'm just aware of where I don't measure up. Even from the beginning, Paul's clear. This isn't a command in how I'm saying this. Okay? And he's saying... What you need to give is what you've decided in your own heart to give. He's not laying out any lines. He's not saying, this is legit, this is not. He's saying, each one must give according to what they have decided in their own heart. According to what they have. Not not what we see someone else doing. The goal is not to compare, not to measure up, but to have an interaction with God. Decide, what is it for me? When we give and God multiplies His generosity to us, 
so that we can multiply our generosity in return. And in case we missed it on the first pass through, look at how comprehensive God's provision is in these verses, especially verses 8 and 11. And God is able to make all grace abound to you. So that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Now, this clearly is not limited to money and finances and giving. But it certainly includes that. And he leaves no room for any holes in that statement. He's able to give all grace so that you have all sufficiency in all things, at all times. You may abound in every good work. In verse 11, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. God enables and rewards our giving. He enables and rewards our giving so that He can capture our hearts. The second thing we see is that God wants to capture our hearts. See, generosity isn't the amount of money given, it's, it's a heart condition. It's how we relate to our money and possessions that is a window into our hearts. Paul says here that God loves a cheerful giver because of what that says about where our trust in trust is, what we're living for. It's our heart that He loves. Not, not the amount that is being given, but the way in which it is being given. The attitude that is taking place in the gift that is offered. He loves the cheerful giver, He says in verse 7. The giving He is seeking from the Corinthians. He wants no part of compulsion. No guilt trips here. He doesn't want any of them giving reluctantly. Paul's goal, well, it's simply not the biggest offering possible. That's not his goal. Instead, he wants what he observed among the Macedonians. Hearts so captured by God that their gifts were the overflow of their love for God and His people. Not reluctantly given, but eagerly, joyfully. Paul's not trying to produce the same amount. He's trying to produce the same heart. The same love for God. A minute ago we read Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 6 that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Paul knew that God is after more than our money. That's not his chief concern. Two weeks ago we read when, uh, what he preached about the unknown God in Athens in Acts chapter 17, 
verses 24 and 25, Paul proclaimed, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. At some point, We need to realize that if God supplies the seed to the sower and then rewards the sower for sowing, what exactly is it that He's after from us? He gave us everything required, everything possible for us to be able to give. Do we not realize that a God that can multiply seed to the sower can also end the famine in Jerusalem? He could make it so that there was no need. It wasn't that long ago that the Jerusalem church was a prosperous place. Now, they are the ones in need. And God wants to provide for them from the Macedonians and the Corinthians. And He promises them blessings and provision to be able to provide that need not because he needs what they have does God really need us to accomplish his purposes is he pacing back and forth in heaven wringing his hands going, oh no redeeming grace church was in the red last year He's not worried. Is he so limited that he needs to plead with us so that he is not embarrassed or that he is incapable of carrying out his plans? Is that what we see in the book of Acts or anywhere else in Scripture? No. He is not dependent upon our gifts or our service. He isn't in need of our money. But He delights to use us in what He is doing. He chooses to use us so that our hearts can be engaged and enlarged. He chooses to involve us so that our hearts will be directed towards things that matter, towards towards treasures that are eternal. He's designed us so that our hearts hearts follow our treasures this is true on large scale and small if your life savings is in one company's stock guess what you're very interested in what happens to the success of that company well isn't that exactly what he's encouraging us to do in laying up our treasures in heaven He wants us to be most concerned, most interested in not the troubles of this life, but what lasts forever. On my own, I could care less whether Bass Pro Shop or Ikea actually opens stores a couple exits from here. However, 
because we own 26 and a half acres not far from there that we'd like to sell, I'm really interested in what comes in there, what the land prices do, because it affects us. That's, that's part of our treasure. We have interest in what's going on there. It's the same principle God has for us. It, it, it works with small things. We, we can actually, we can, from this principle, direct our hearts in ways we want them to go. If, if you invest $55 in a marriage workshop, arrange for a sitter, block off 24 hours of your valuable time, you'll show up. You'll not only show up, but you'll listen carefully. You'll anticipate how that investment might bear fruit in your marriage. It has our attention because we're invested. We're sowing into it and we look forward to reaping from it. Do you want to develop a heart for church planting or some part of the world? Well, commit to give to the church plan in Colombia or Tokyo. And see if your heart won't follow. You won't be more interested when you see the little update in Grace Mail. See that, that you won't want to hear when one of those guys comes back. How's it going? Because you're sowing into that. You're eager to see what the harvest is there. Our hearts follow our treasures. You want your passion for this local body to grow, to be more engaged with its mission and success. Invest of your time, your talents, your resources, and see if your heart doesn't follow. Is your treasure directing your heart where you want it to? Now, neither Matt nor I know what anyone gives, but it's not hard to see when folks are invested. It goes way beyond a check dropped in the offering bucket. And for this reason, as plain as I can say it, as much as I can emphasize it, I don't want this message to come across as corrective in any way. Hopefully different parts will be instructive or revealing for different folks, but please don't read in any of this any rebuke because it is not intended. As we pointed out at the family meeting, you are engaged. From those that lay their lives down, leading and serving care groups and ministry teams, to 98% of our membership serving in some regular capacity, we're rich. You are engaged. This isn't meant to be a correction. This is meant to be a start for us. To make sure we're pointing in the right direction. Please don't hear from anything I say. Anything close to all y'all don't really love Jesus. Or care about this church. Because it's flat out not true. We know it. The way you live and relate week by week speaks loud and clear. To your credit and to the glory of God. What Brandon shared as he was up here this morning, I give a hearty amen. It's been our personal experience. To the guests we had with us last week, that was their experience. 
I am so grateful because you are invested. It's much more than just finances. And we see that and we are grateful to God because of that. But when we talk about our hearts, I'm also aware that there's always more that God wants to conquer and to capture. The Corinthians were initially excited to be able to participate, but the more time that elapsed, the more they began to question that idea, the more they wondered if the investment was worth it, the more they wondered if other investments might be more satisfying, the more reluctant they became. So, in addition to unfolding the nature of God to both enable their giving and to reward their giving, Paul aims straight for the heart by pointing out the self-sacrificing, sinner-loving, soul-winning generosity of God. The greatest motivator Paul gives is God himself. If we find the Macedonian example provoking, well, God is in a category all his own. God is the alpha and omega of generous giving. We give generously because God is a generous giver. We can give generously because God has given generously to us and for us. We see it here in verse 9. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. But this has to be read in the context of what we read the chapter before, chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you by His poverty might become rich. What does it mean in chapter 9 when it says He gave to the poor? He was rich. For our sake He became poor, so that thus we who were poor might become rich. Talk about an apostolic understatement. Though he was rich, so much is contained in just a couple words. He was rich in every way. He enjoyed unbroken fellowship from eternity past with God the Father. He reigned in glory where he was worshipped continually for who he truly was. The Almighty, the Creator, the Lord of heaven and earth, the Alpha and the Omega, the One who was and is and is to come, the Holy One, the Great I Am. Day after day after day after day, the hosts of heaven praised Him and adored Him and served Him and loved Him and obeyed Him. Yeah, He was rich. Yet, for our sake... For our sake, he became poor. He left the glories and riches and uninterrupted praises of heaven to become part of his creation, to take on flesh, to be born of a woman, brought into this world in a smelly stable, forced to flee for his life to Egypt when only a few months old, to be misunderstood his whole life, thought he was mad by his family, 
He tried to impart revelation to a group of disciples that usually missed the point and eventually all deserted him at his darkest hour, his lowest point. He was unjustly tried and convicted when no fault could be found in him. He was beaten and humiliated and hung on a cross while those same angels and hosts of heaven must have looked on, bewildered, furious at the blindness and utter perversion and inversion of everything that was right and true, forsaken, by the Father, the author of life, gave up his life for our sake. He became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. We, the ones who deserved what he got, get what he deserved we get to be raised with him to new life we get to be seated with him in the heavenly places we get to hear well done good and faithful servant we get to enjoy sonship an unending relationship with the father though he was rich for our sake he became poor so that we, by his poverty, might become rich. That's where Paul roots joy and love in giving. That's where he wants our hearts to be most engaged. This can't be earned. It can't be paid back. But it should be a place of awe and wonder. It's a place we need to go and camp out when we're seeking the want to in our service and our giving. We can give generously to God because God has given generously to us. Generously for us. And when we do, He rewards. <laughs> he multiplies our ability to give so that we can be an even bigger blessing and receive an even greater reward. He rewards us for something he doesn't need us in order to accomplish. Something he could do much more quickly, much more effectively, much more efficiently without us. Something that he provides for us everything that we need and require to participate in. And he rewards us. All he asks is that we aim in the right direction. And even that, he provides us with the motivation and ability to do. What does that tell us about the kind of God that he is? He's either certifiably nuts or the most generous being that could possibly exist. It's the latter. He is the generous landowner who hires workers at the 11th hour, not for the work that he will get out of us, but so that he can pay us 
a day's wage, and provide for our needs. Have you considered that God designed giving not because he needs it, but because we do? We need to be involved in the mission and the process. We need the loosening effect giving has on our hearts towards the stuff of earth. We need the blessings from God that he has ordained will only come as we give. He owns it all. He doesn't need us, but he loves to bless us as he includes us in the process and directs our hearts towards the things that matter most rather than the things that grip us most. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Your responses between you and God. But I would encourage us. Let's give as an act of faith, a declaration of who God is. To do so, we must believe that He exists and that He is a rewarder. Faith is trusting beyond what we can see. It's not blind. It's a broadening of our vision to see beyond just the here and now and the numbers on the page that don't add up. Faith is believing that there is more than just your checkbook and bank account balance at play here. It is believing God is able to keep His promises. It is believing that God is always the greatest giver and more amazing than we can possibly imagine we give to the one who already has it all. And we pray to the one who is able to do abundantly more than we can ask or imagine. Let's do that together now. Father, I ask that you do that right now, that you do way beyond what we can ask or imagine. Lord, anything that, that wasn't from you, I pray that you erase it. <laughs> Whatever is for you, for particular individuals, Lord, I, I pray that you make it stick. For each of us, I pray that you give us hearts to respond. Lord, help us. Help us to live for what matters. Help it to be revealed in all of life, not just our giving. Lord, I pray that none are discouraged by the smallness of what they have might, might they take heart with the examples we have Macedonians the widow we be reminded that it's not the dollar amount it's the direction of our hearts that you're most concerned with Lord use us scary and thrilling and all stuff mixed in together the idea that you want to use us even though you don't really need us help us be amazed by that help us to follow hard after you we pray